This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 9 through 13 in part 6 of what we're calling uh, the Lord's Other Prayer. Uh, So Jesus, as you remember, he's praying uh, what is known as really the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's praying specifically uh, for his disciples now, and here is what he is saying in his prayer. If you would stand with me for the honor of reading God's word uh, together, we we do this because we're acknowledging that That through the word of God, God himself is speaking to us. This is God's word. This is God speaking. And so we stand in reverence to receive it. Here's what the precious, inerrant, infallible word of God says to us, his children. Jesus says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do consider ourselves extremely abundantly grateful to have this word and to uh, be in a place where we can hear it proclaimed freely. Lord, where we are not hindered by a government in any way to declare and proclaim the word of God. We thank you as we've already recognized that those who have given their lives for that very purpose, um, Lord, to, for the freedoms we get to enjoy each day, for those who have served um, in that purpose, we thank you for them. Lord, as we come to your word, would you help us um, see your role here as our intercessor, as our high priest? Um, and Lord, what that means for us as your children as we walk in this sinful world Uh, striving for Christ-likeness. Help us, Father, continue to keep us in your name, separated from the world and united unto Christ. We ask all these things in the name of our King, our High Priest, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the things we've noted in several of our previous sermons here is that uh, the departure of Jesus is going to be a crisis for the disciples, right? It is going to crush them, and yet... Um, We know that, yes, Jesus said, it is better that I go away. Yes, we know that there were great advantages to be gained by Jesus' departure, especially since we know he's departing to go purchase their redemption on the cross and be raised for the dead for the justification uh, of that purchase. But that didn't mean that it was going to be smooth sailing for the disciples, right? In fact, we know that the road ahead of them, the road they're about to face, is going to be filled with troubles and strife. So therefore, Jesus takes the time to pray for them before he leaves them behind. Jesus knows what they're about to face. He knows what they're about to endure. He's omniscient. He knows what they will need while he's away. And so it is for this reason that he prays to the Father for his disciples. Now, I want to note that that Jesus offers this prayer in his capacity as the high priest of his people. That's not uh, terms we use a lot in the Baptist circle, uh, uh, but this is very important for us to grasp because what Jesus is doing here is unique to him. 
This isn't simply anything like a normal prayer that you and I would pray for one another. This is a prayer of the only mediator between God and man. This is the prayer of one who is fully righteous. Therefore, every aspect of this prayer would be heard and answered because of who Jesus is. Because of his work, his person, every aspect of this prayer would be heard by the Father. Now, to better understand the significance of Jesus' role as our high priest, uh, it might be helpful for us to consider this in light of the role of the priest in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Uh, to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood of the Old Covenant, and that's what we're going to do now. In the Old Covenant, God instituted this priesthood. And the priest of God served in at least two particular ways we're going to examine this morning. First, uh, the priest would offer blood sacrifices for sin. That's a role that they would take place in, okay? So this was required, remember, because God's justice demands that sin be dealt with. If a person had any hope of having a relationship with God, his sin or her sin had to be atoned for, has to. God's holiness and justice is such that sin simply cannot be in his presence. He is too holy to look upon sin. Sin has to be taken out of the picture completely. That can only happen through atonement. And so the scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In other words, God's justice requires that the wages of sin be paid. So, in his grace, the Lord instituted the sacrificial system, and he did so uh, to show us how awful sin is, but... He also provided this system to show us that sin could be washed away through what we call substitutionary atonement. It is given to show that it was possible for the sins of one person to be satisfied by the punishment of another in his or her place. So I want you to think about this. God graciously gave us this sacrificial system. You read about it in the Old Testament, in Leviticus and Exodus. Uh, he gave us a sacrificial system to show us our need for substitutionary atonement. Okay? That's why we were given this system. To show us that you and I need somebody else. We need somebody perfect, in fact, to suffer in our place for our sins. If we ever have any hope of having a right relationship with a true and living God, you and I must have our sins atoned for and we have to have somebody take our place. But as we're told in the scripture, even the high priest and their sins needed to be atoned for. Further, we're told clearly within the scriptures that the, the blood of bulls and goats could never actually atone for the sins of mankind. They can never truly take away the guilt of sin. See, that, that sacrificial system was only a temporary provision that God instituted. It's only supposed to be temporary. The, the Levites were only a type of the priest who was to come. 
The blood sacrifice was only a type of the sacrifice that God would provide himself in sending the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But the other role, the second role that the priests served in the Old Covenant we see here was that they made intercession for the people. The priest would shed the blood of the sacrifice and on the basis of that shed blood, they would intercede on behalf of the people. Now, as I said a moment ago, these, these things were only a temporary means for the people of God. That's why you didn't bring any bulls or goats in here with you today. First of all, because Sheila would have a whole lot of mess to clean up, right? And secondly, because I would, don't want to get blood on me today. That's not a goal I have. But the priest would shed the blood of the sacrifice, and on the basis of that shed blood, they would intercede on behalf of the people. But as we said, this was temporary, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't actually atone, truly or fully atone for sin. Those sacrifices served as a foreshadow of the only sacrifice that could ever atone for sin. They pointed to the sacrifice which the Lord Jesus Christ himself would provide. Jesus not only, uh, not only offers the only sacrifice which can take away sin, he's not only offering that, but he is himself that very sacrifice think about this jesus is the priest that offers the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice himself that's amazing not only does he offer himself as a sacrifice for sin but just like the priesthood of the old covenant uh, he has the other equally important role as our intercessor Jesus is our inter intercessor. We can see that importance of this work of intercession simply by looking at the many ways that the scripture talk about uh, this role and its, important, and its importance. Jesus' ministry of intercessor, uh, as, as intercessor, is a very important part of his ministry. In fact, in Romans 8, 34, Paul reminds us that who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, so we see how important this ministry of intercession is in the high priestly work of Jesus because it's directly related to his death and his resurrection. It's associated with that. As important as Jesus' death and his resurrection are, so is his work of interceding on behalf of his people. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read this. Therefore, he, being Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about that. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. Now, if this is a ministry that the Lord Jesus is going to do eternally, forever, I would say it's an important ministry that he does on our behalf, wouldn't you? On the basis of his own shed blood, Jesus intercedes for his people. Now, church, that's a gift and it's a gift that provides many implications for us, both heavenly on earth and earthly. On the basis of his own shed blood, Jesus has entered through the veil of the Holy of Holies. He has made the way possible, of course, for us to come before God. But not only do we now in the New Testament have this direct access to the Father through the Son, 
But the Bible is clear. We also have Jesus himself praying for us. Think about this. Jesus himself prays for us. You know, I I think you and I can probably attest to this as well, right? I, I know it's true for me. We love to have other people pray for us, don't we? It is such an encouragement to know. It's a wonderful thing to know that people who love you and and care for you are remembering you before the holy throne of grace. That is so encouraging. But you know, it is all the more wonderful and amazing to know that Jesus himself is actually praying for you. I think too often we fail to appreciate this role of our Savior. What a comfort it is to recognize that our high priest is omniscient. He knows everything, including knowing everything that is before us, everything that we are about to walk through. He knows what we're going to be dealing with long before it ever comes to pass. And knowing what is ahead of us, he prays for us. Just like he did with the disciples. He knew what they were about to face. And what do we find him doing? He's committing those things to prayer before God the Father. Jesus does the same thing for you and I. He knows what is around the bend and he is praying for us even now concerning those things to come. Let me me ask you something this morning. Have you ever come into a difficult situation only to find that the Lord has given you what you need in order to deal with that situation? Have you ever faced a problem that you could not resolve and somehow it got resolved? Have you ever been in need of money only to find out that the Lord sent you exactly what you need through some unexpected means? Have you ever faced a problem that under normal circumstances would have crushed you only to find that you've been given the strength to stand strong in the midst of that trial with indescribable peace? Have you ever experienced any of these things before? Where do you suppose those gifts came from? They are a direct result of our high priest making intercession for us. Jesus is praying on our behalf so that you and I would be equipped with all that we need to encounter whatever we face in this life. He's praying for you. This is the wonderful ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to see something else here. This, secondly, is a particular ministry that he carries for a particular people. I'm sorry to say that was just the introduction here. But the intercession, secondly, uh, the intercession of Jesus is a particular ministry that he carries for a particular people. This is what he's going to say to us. That Jesus doesn't intercede on behalf of everyone. This is, this is a particular ministry that are, is for his disciples, for those who are saved by grace and followers of Jesus. Let's look at what he says in verses 9 and 10 in our text. He says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I've been glorified in them. I want us to think about this. Keep in mind, this is the way it was in the Old Testament. The high priest only interceded on behalf of those who offered a sacrifice. 
That's important to understand when it comes to making sense of what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? Intercession is directly tied to the sacrifice. In the same way, Jesus only intercedes on behalf of those for whom he himself has been a sacrifice. Those are the ones he is praying for. Now, obviously, you might be wondering, why, why is this important? Why do we need to emphasize this? Why is it important to know that Jesus only prays for his own? It's important because it shows us that our Savior continues to care and provide for us even when he's away. We may not see him, we we don't see him, but he continues to minister to us. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding. He is actively involved. Listen to this. The Lord Jesus Christ, creator of the universe, is actively involved in the everyday affairs of his people. He knows what to pray for us long before we even have a clue about it. It also shows us that he's sovereign because in whatever he prays, he also is the one who brings it to pass as our king. Jesus uh, prays for his church and because he does, the church can be confident that she'll be successful in her commission to advance his kingdom of God on earth. Because Jesus prays for the church, the church can be confident that Jesus will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against her. No matter how bleak things might appear throughout church history, we know that we have Jesus Christ interceding on behalf of his church and her work. Not only that, but because Jesus prays for us, we know with certainty that our future is secure. That that we will be protected, we will be preserved, and that we will persevere to the end. All of that is because Jesus is keeping us in his prayers. J.C. Ryle had these interesting, helpful comments to make concerning this. He says this. He said, this special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret to the believer's safety. He is daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. We read that in Hebrews 7. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them and his prayer must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. Judas fell never to rise again, while Peter fell, repented, and was restored. The reason of the difference lay under those words of Christ to Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So so do you know uh, why this is such an important ministry of the Lord Jesus? You know why this ministry of intercession is such a special gift? If you belong to Jesus, you have him ministering to you as your personal great high priest. If you belong to Jesus, you have been marked out from the rest of the world. When he looks upon this world, he sees you, his church, as the apple of his eye. As a father and mother can easily distinguish their children from the rest of the kids in the playground, so our Father in heaven sees you like this in this world. You are his. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. I want to look at verse 10 now. Look at what Jesus says as he's 
praying to the Father. This caught my eye this week. He says, and all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I've been glorified in them. We see a couple things in this text. Jesus goes on to teach us that those belong to the Father also belong to the Son. Those who belong to the Father also belong to the Son. Now, of course, we know this is a reference to his Messiahship, right? That Jesus is the anointed one, the foretold one, the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. So, uh, so you see, when, when Jesus says, all mine are yours, that's easy to understand for us, isn't it? We, we could attest to that. Every one of us understands how everything we have is not really our own, right? That God owns all things because he is creator. So it's easy for anybody to say that all I have is yours when speaking to the Father. But it's not so easy to understand the second part, is it? That's going to need a little bit of explanation. Who among us would dare to say that all that belongs to God belongs to us as well? I mean, think about it, spoken by the wrong people, this would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? So in what sense is Jesus able to say this? Well, he's able because he's, he's no mere man. Jesus is the God-man. He is the mediator. And in, in, in this short verse, we're presented with the two natures of the Son of God. By saying all mine are yours, we see Christ's humanity displayed. When he says all yours are mine, we see his deity displayed. As a second person of the Godhead, Jesus shares possessions of all things with the Father and the Spirit. But in this verse, we see another thing, number four. Jesus also says that he is glorified in his disciples. We talked a little bit about this confusion last week. This is equally confusing. We once again might wonder how in the world Jesus could ever say that he was glorified by his disciples, right? By this group of men? That's a remarkable statement considering how many times they failed him and all of their failures up until this point. So in light of that, how can Jesus say that he's glorified in them? And by extension to us as his disciples who fail him an equal amount of times in this current day, how can it be the case that Jesus is glorified in and through us? Well, let's look at a, a couple of reasons here. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's a list nonetheless. First of all, he's glorified by our belief, and we'll put the two together, and by our trust in him. It brings him great glory for us to believe and trust in his glorious provision of salvation to us. You glorify the Father simply by your faith and trust in him. He's glorified. He's also glorified by us in our living for him. We know this, our chief end on this earth is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We do this by believing in Jesus, by trusting in him, and by living for him. And I want you to know something here, church. It, Jesus isn't just glorified by those disciples who were to fill out special roles as apostles. We got to grasp this. He is glorified by us as well. By everyday people living everyday normal lives, no matter what your station or part in life is, whether you are a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a husband or wife, whether you are a housewife or stay-at-home mom, whether you are outside or inside the home, whether you're a teacher, student, employer, employee, no matter where you are in your life, whatever situation you might be in, 
If you belong to Jesus, you have the capacity to bring him glory in your normal everyday responsibilities and activities. You don't have to become clergy in order to bring glory to God. All you have to do is to be mindful of the fact that whatever you do, you should strive to do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, if you would but raise your eyes above and do the work not as unto men, but unto the Lord, you will bring glory to Jesus. Then additionally, you bring glory to Jesus by meeting the needs of others, by serving others. When you see somebody in need, and you have the ability to meet that need, whether it's providing food or drink or clothing or perhaps even lending an open ear to listen to somebody who's lonely or is in need. Whenever you do anything like this, you can bring glory to Jesus because he says, whenever you do something unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So we bring glory to him in all these ways and more. Let's move on to verse 11 now. Hopefully that gave you time to write that down. Should have warned you, there's a bit of notes here this morning. Verse 11, Jesus says this, he says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus prays for the Father to keep the disciples, but not just that. He doesn't pray for the Father to simply keep them in the sense of protecting them. That's certainly an element to this, right? An element to Christ's prayer, which is true. But in this particular part of the prayer, Jesus prays for the Father to keep them in his name. Jesus' desire for the disciples would, that, would be that they would be kept in the Father's name for the sake of unity. That's what he says in verse 11. Holy Father... Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, why? That they may be one even as we are. Now this is one of those verses that's often misconstrued and, and, and torn apart, but this unity that he prays for here, it, it's a oneness that is really associated with us being separate from the world. That's what he's requiring here. This portion of prayer is mainly concerned with God's people being in the world, not of it. Um, Jesus prays that one of the results of our being kept in the name of God will be seen in us being united as the people of God and what makes us distinct from the world. See, there should be something about us, a cohesion as the people of God in the name of God that makes us set apart from the world. You'll notice that this is different from Jesus praying that we would all be united in the sense of all the churches being one huge denomination. That's not what he's saying here. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? As wonderful as that would be, it's not what he's praying here. Jesus is praying that we would be united together in our stand against the world. That together, we would be distinguished from the world by remaining in his name. Now, I want you to think about this, because this is one of those things, we take worldliness, that world, and we just attest it to everything that's not sitting in a church service praying and reading your Bible, right? Uh, that's not the definition of worldliness, okay? This sort of thing uh, can be wrongly applied in some ways. For instance, there are a number of things um, for, that some within Christ's church 
have deemed worldly that God has not deemed worldly. So what happens is when we tend to do this, people make the mistake of thinking, well, if we're going to be kept in the name of God and be distinct from the world, then here's the list of the rules that we're going to have to keep that keep us from the rest of the world. Church family, can I tell you something? Being worldly isn't just about what we do. Being worldly is, is more actually a state of mind. It's involved in what we do, but it's a state of mind. It's an overall approach to life that is basically rooted in hedonism. It's a way of thinking which places our desires and our pleasures above everyone else's. To be worldly is to think just like the world. It's to look at the world around us and view it as though God does not exist. See, to be worldly means to make the chief end of man his own glory so that he might enjoy himself until he dies. That's where we do well then to make these distinctions between the church and the world. To be set apart in the name of God as distinct from the world, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's having at the forefront of your mind what we already talked about, the glory of the Lord. In my life, am I setting out as the chief of all I do to bring glory to the Lord? And that will resonate not so much in a list of things I ought to do and things I ought not to do, though that's a part of it. It'll resonate in really our character, graciousness, selflessness, living for God's glory and modeling him in that way. Let's move on to verse 12 now. Jesus says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Now, no doubt, when I read this in our Bible reading this morning, at the beginning, this is probably what stuck out to you, right? What, the son of perdition, I've heard that, I remember that. Well, think about this. Jesus has said that all that the Father had given him, he lost none, except the son of perdition. Now, what's our temptation here? Some of us might read this and think that Judas, who is, by the way, who's referring to you as the son of perdition, that Judas is an exception to the rule with regard to the keeping power of Jesus. That somehow uh, Jesus saved Judas, but then lost his grip or lost his saving power when it came to this one exception. That's not what the passage is saying at all. I want uh, to quote from you, actually, William Hendrickson, a great commentator on this passage. He says this. He said, when Jesus says, and not one of them perish but the son of perdition, he does not mean that with the exception of Judas, all those whom the father had given to the son had been guarded. He certainly does not intend to convey the thought that in the case of Judas, he had failed miserably to carry out the assignment given to him. And then Hendrickson goes on to give a paraphrase of verse 17 and says, what Jesus meant was this, and I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition did perish. However, far from proving that in this one instance, the plan from eternity was defeated and the prophecy left unfulfilled, this happened in order to, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. You see the difference in those two things? Depending on how you emphasize the text, there's a different meaning that flows out of it. You see, as the disciples heard Jesus' prayer, listen, they were actually encouraged by this. They were actually encouraged by what they heard him say. This is why Jesus prays out loud. He desires that they would hear that the only one among their group who is lost is the same one who's always been lost. 
The son of perdition translates actually doomed to destruction. That means having never been of God, never having belonged to God ever, he was doomed for destruction. So he wasn't lost in the sense that he fell out of the grip or out of the loving care of Jesus Christ. Friends, he never belonged to Jesus. And so hearing this, the disciples would have been encouraged in their trust of Jesus because they would have known that he does all things in accordance with his perfect will. And they should have found comfort in knowing that they belong to Jesus. And because of that, nothing can separate them from his love. No one can pluck them out of the Father's hand and that all who belong to him belong to him eternally. I want to move on to the conclusion here by looking briefly at verse 13. I know this is a lot here and thank you for bearing with me. I'm trying to pick up the pace just a little bit. Uh, but as you see, this is why this is my, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. There's just so much here that we can bring glory and honor to Christ through. Let's finally read verse 13. And if that previous verse didn't melt your brain, this one will. Here's what it says. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Think about this. After mentioning how he kept all the father that was given to him, look at what he notes. He notes, even though he is on his way to the father in heaven and he spoke these things in the world, one of the purposes that he did that was so that they may have his joy fulfilled in themselves. That's amazing. Jesus spoke the words of this prayer for the express, expressed purpose that his disciples would hear this prayer and in hearing this prayer, they would have his joy. Think about this in the context for just a moment. Jesus is heading to the cross. Jesus is about to experience the most gruesome, terrible experience of his life and yet he speaks here of his desire, his longing, the word means, of his disciples to know his joy. Isn't that amazing? I, I don't know about you, but I often found that the, the phrase misery loves company is so true in my life, right? That when I'm miserable, the worst thing that you can do is be joyous around me, right? Because uh, I'm, not, I'm not buying it, right? That's, that's because I'm selfish if you didn't know that, right? And because it, there's a tendency in my flesh to think that if I'm miserable, guess what? You ought to be miserable too. Uh, and so I'm not even looking at my wife right now. Okay. Uh, but Jesus, in his beauty and in his grace, even though he is about to go and suffer the worst death anyone could possibly suffer, he desires that the disciples would have his joy. That's amazing. Bruce Milne, one commentator notes, he says, it is surely remarkable that he can refer to his own joy when he knows that the most appalling suffering is about to engulf him. Nor is it a passing or spasmodic joy to which he refers. It is the full measure of his joy. Neither the hostility from without nor the apostasy from within has quenched the joy of Jesus, nor need it do so in the case of the disciples. See, what he's saying there is that Jesus had joy despite his outward circumstances. He had this joy because he knew 
that everything he was about to endure had at its center and its focus a glorious purpose. That's why we're told, by the way, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See, Jesus not only prayed for his disciples to have his joy, but he prayed so that they would have it fulfilled. That he would have his joy fulfilled. That is the only way, uh, think about this, the only opportunity you have to have a person's joy fulfilled is to find joy in the things that they find joy in. So the only way you can have Jesus' joy fulfilled is if you find joy in what Jesus finds joy in. In essence, Jesus found his joy in God. He found his joy in the Father. (coughs) Excuse me. If we want to have his joy fulfilled in us, we need to do the same. You and I, friends, we need to find our joy in God. Let me tell you something. I want to close with this thought. There's something that hit me this week. See, you and I have no problem in delighting in good things that the Lord has done for us. The challenge is delighting in the Lord when nothing very good is happening and we only have him. Can I ask you this? Is your joy in the Lord only when things are going your way? Is that the basis of your joy? Church family, to to have the joy of Jesus fulfilled is to get away from finding joy in the things uh, or circumstances of this life and instead to find our joy rooted in our relationship with the Lord. For those who belong to Jesus, we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know what? We, We might not be very strong on the outside. We may never be very strong on the outside. But if we have his joy fulfilled in ourselves, we will be strong in the Lord on the inner man. On the inside, we will be strong. And that is a wonderful thing. So that's my prayer for you at the conclusion of this is all these wonderful things we learn about our Savior and the ways that we can glorify him and the ways that he is our intercessor, the way that if if he knows us, if we belong to him, we belong to the Father, all this ought to result in joy. Joy made full. And listen, this is such a temptation for us, right? When we're faced with difficult circumstances I've already shared, our biggest temptation is to to feel like our joy is temporary and it's not lasting. But friends, if that's the case, you're finding your joy in the wrong place. Because if you are in Christ, if Jesus himself is praying that your faith not fail, God will result and grant that prayer request because Jesus himself is God. He is, there's no, nothing in his way to the Father. There's no sin in his path. He's already accomplished it. And so if you are his, you belong to him and nothing can take the joy of that away. So if you're, if, you're, if you're losing your joy, if we're to look at your life and say there's just no joy, and listen, I understand in graciousness why there may not be, why it's a struggle and it's a fight, but friends, that's why it's the job of the church for all of us to direct our view, our minds to what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf because you will find joy in that. If you're his, you must find joy in that. 
Because this world will never bring you that type of joy. The joy of the world is fleeting. It's going away. It's passing every hour. The joy of the Lord is our strength and it endures forever and nothing can take that away from you. What beauty we find in the joy of the Lord. So walk out of here with that joy. Fight for it, yes. Struggle, struggle mightily. But friends, oh, we have so much to be joyous for because our King has accomplished our redemption. Praise God for his wonderful, wonderful grace in this. My final question is, do you have that joy? Have you ever had it? If you've never had the joy of the Lord, if you've never experienced the joy that comes in knowing you are redeemed by God, friends, then you may have never been redeemed by God. My prayer for you is that you would receive the, the substitutionary atonement of the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that today you can walk out of here with your joy fulfilled. Doesn't mean your life's gonna be easy. It doesn't mean it's all cupcakes and rainbows, right? The Christian life is hard, it's grueling, it's difficult because we're still in this world, but you have a hope and joy that will last for all eternity if you have Christ. I, I don't know anybody across the world that can promise you and guarantee you such a wonderful thing as that. If you come to Christ, if you give your life and heart to Christ and you are truly his, you have everlasting joy. So if you don't have that, friends, if you've never had that, my prayer is that you'd have it and you'd come to Christ today. Please stand and join your hearts with me in prayer.